Hey, everybody. We're doing another cold open this time because we have another Nobel laureate visit this week. So David Weinland, who won the Nobel Prize in 2012. And so we're very excited about that. He and Bill Phillips, who was in our previous episode, are both coming to campus this week. So we're, we're pretty excited about seeing that. We do have a little bit of an issue here that we had some technical sound problems. And so there will be a point in which we will be talking about relativity and the audio was just a little bit garbled. So Chad and I are going to jump in in the middle of that and just try to explain what he was telling us so that you can hear it more easily. And then then we'll kind of jump back into the show after that. So enjoy the show. From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that says, Cesium the Day. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is David Wineland. Hey, Chad. How's it going, Mike? I'm kind of excited today. We have a special guest star, possibly the biggest get we've had <laughs> yet. <but laughs> yeah. Gonna try to give him the crisscrossing bump. Um, <laughs> who do we have in the studio today? We have Dr. David Wineland, Nobel laureate who I hear tell will also be visiting campus in the not too distant future. And so I'm looking forward to that and uh, really thank him for joining us today. I'll, I'll let you give some more background, Mike. After his postdoc, he went to NIST. It wasn't called NIST at the time, but the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is, at least when I was in grad school, that was sort of where all the major research seemed to be happening. It used to be Bell Labs is where people go, and then NIST seemed to rise up and was fantastic. He is now the Philip H. Knight Distinguished Research Chair at the University of Oregon, so sort of in our backyard here. And so, David, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah. So when we were reading up a little bit for this interview, I found on the NIST website, they talked how sometimes people are recognized for the Nobel Prize by doing like a single experiment. Like, for instance, uh -huh. Einstein did all sorts of things, but he won the Nobel Prize specifically right. for the photoelectric effect, which most right. people wouldn't even know what that means. But <laughs> but in contrast, you were recognized for a string of successes. And so it, it's going to make it very hard for us today to kind of figure out exactly what we want to talk about, because you've done so much throughout your career. And so we're excited to listen to you and, and learn from you today. All right. uh, so broadly speaking, you study atomic physics. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about what is that field? What are you doing with that? Well, atomic physics is, you know, going back in history, it was one of the areas of experimentation that could verify a lot of things about quantum mechanics. So it's been going for more than a century now, for sure. But in my own case, where the two applications that I've been interested in my career started out as atoms as clocks, atomic clocks. And uh, that work sort of naturally branched out into a topic now, which is, gets a lot of attention, which is quantum computing. And they, you know, the, the, the ideas don't overlap very much, but it turns out that the experiments that we do are almost exactly the same for quantum computing and also for atomic clocks. So it was an easy transition when we started working on uh, quantum computing. Hmm. Okay. So for the biologist in the room, can you please help me wrap my head around by what you mean by an atomic clock? I mean, I know I've heard the term before, but mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I could really explain to somebody what that is. The idea is pretty simple. If we use, for example, the Bohr model of the atom where, say, an electron is orbiting around the nucleus, basically these different orbits that the electron can have, their frequency of orbiting is 
governed by the natural laws of physics. And so what's nice about that is if we can measure those frequencies, we can make a standard. That is, if we measure a certain transition in our lab, say at NIST or, or compared to someone in Europe, if we do the experiments right, the experiments should run at exactly the same rate. One thing to say is that, that you know, this, this goes back a while, but the, the definition of the second is based on so many oscillations of what's called the hyperfine transition in cesium atoms. And it turned out that that transition, it's at around 10 gigahertz. And so it's at a fairly manageable frequency. But it just turned out that being able to measure that frequency turned out to be easier to measure than other frequencies or other frequencies in atoms. It provided the definition of second. And that started, the definition was made in the mid 1960s. And it turns out it's still this definition of the second. And so it's when so many oscillations, it's 9,192,000,000 cycles per second. When that number of cycles elapses, that is the definition of the unit of time in one second. So this is internationally agreed on. And it turns out that we can measure more precisely other transitions now, but just because it's been such a good standard for so long, the definition hasn't changed yet. And, you know, it didn't have to be cesium, but the idea is that you want to transition that other people can easily measure and so that they can set their clock to be running at the same rate of your clock, for example. And then, so this idea of like an atomic clock, timekeeping is something that's absolutely essential for all kinds of engineering applications in like computing and communications and communicating with satellites and, right. and all that kind of stuff. And so that's why it's really important to have an extremely precise way to measure time in that way. Is that that's right. the right yeah, track and here? One of the outstanding examples is a GPS system where this network of satellites has synchronized clocks. You know, the way navigation works in that case is that if you are you have a clock that's synchronized with the clocks on board the satellite, then by some protocol, you can say that the satellite emits a pulse of radiation every second. And if your clocks are synchronized, you can determine the time delay of that pulse going from the satellite to you. And that gives you the distance through the speed of light. So that's the way the GPS system works. <laughs> and then if, you know, if you have a network of satellites and you get your three-dimensional position, so you can triangulate it that you can say like this one is this far away to my left someplace and this one is this far yeah. away. Okay. Basically it's yeah, not any more complicated than that, other than maybe the hardware. <laughs> So what does one of these clocks look like? Well, let's take the cesium clock, for example. That, and it's been in existence for, you know, even commercially for decades now. And the basic idea there is that you need a vacuum system. And the way these things typically work is you'll create a, you know, a vapor of cesium that can travel unimpeded down a, a tube, you know, a cylinder. And it could be anywhere from, you know, 30 centimeters and the longest ones are four meters. But anyway, as the cesium atoms travel down this tube, you can irradiate the, with uh, microwave radiation. And it turns out if the radiation you apply is synchronized with this frequency, then it changes the state of the atom as it moves down the tube. We have ways to measure this change of state. So, so basically, you just you know we just tune our oscillator in the lab that provides the microwaves to drive this transition. We just we look for the frequency where this transition we say is made with maximum probability, and then the frequency we're applying is exactly at the so-called hyperfine frequency, which defines the second. Oh, so you have something that you can 
tune to have exactly that's, the right frequency. That's right. It's basically just some sort of oscillator that can supply the radiation. And then when we get this maximum signal, then we know that the frequency of the oscillator is tuned to this transition in cesium. And then we just count, basically count cycles of the radiation we're applying to get, to realize the, the second. Oh, so you're not, so the cesium itself is sort of to check the clock, basically. It, it's so, sort of like yeah. you have this oscillator that you've tuned just right. And the cesium is there just to make sure that it's at the right frequency. That's right. You know, it takes a little bit of background, but we change the the state of the cesium atom. And I haven't said how we detect that, but when, you know, as it travels down this tube, we can tell when it's changed its state. And we know when that happens with maximum probability, then the radiation we apply is exactly equal to this particular reference transit, the so-called hyperfine transition in cesium. Well, so you're talking about, you basically excited an electron in the cesium. You know, atoms can absorb radiation and then right. they re-emit it. And so we've talked on the show about how an atom can absorb energy, a photon, yeah. and so then it'll get excited and then it'll later on emit that energy That's right. in some random direction. Okay, so you have cesium gas. And are we talking about just one, a single atom or are we talking about no, a no, whole they're, bunch? They're, in the case of the cesium clocks, the traditional one is where we have a, a, a vacuum tube and it's literally, it's a long cylinder and usually made of metal, for example, stainless steel, just because we can get a high vacuum inside this. And then at one end of this tube, we have a small reservoir. Think of like, you know, it could be cesium in a thimble or something and you heat it up. And the nice thing about cesium is it actually vaporizes at a fairly low temperature. And so we make a vapor of, of the cesium atoms and then we collimate it. You know, in other words, it sprays everywhere, but we make some apertures where it's just going to make that kind of a beam down this, this tube. Okay. So for our listeners, an aperture is basically just a hole. Yeah, that's right. right. And so and a we, lot of the cesium is going in, it's just splatting yeah. on, onto this, this plate. <laughs> that's right. A small we, hole know, in it. Yeah. And, and so actually there's ways to recirculate that, the cesium. But anyway, that's the basic idea. Yes, we just... We, we, the source would be, you know, emitting atoms in all all directions, but we we basically just put plates with holes in them to select out a certain portion of that that defines then a beam that goes down this tube. Okay. So it's cesium is kind of interesting because it's actually it melts at a very low temperature. If you have a you know ampule of, that has cesium inside of it, if you hold it in your hand, the cesium will melt, but you don't want to have it out in the air because cesium will start a fire. <laughs> so you want to keep it under vacuum, but it's an interesting metal that it actually melts at body temperature. Hmm. So. Hmm. Okay, so so now we have this gas that you've turned into a, a beam. Just yeah, we, basically only only the the particles that are originally just shot in just the right direction will make it through your gauntlet of that's right yeah, of holes. So the idea of the oven is with the collimators just to make a a beam of atoms that go can go down this tube, and then we have, you know as you say that's not very efficient. We but we can recollect a lot of the cesium and, and then keep using it in the oven. So okay. anyway, but that's that's the idea. So we just want this beam to travel down this tube. And, and as it, in the case of this so-called cesium beam clock, we as it as the beam goes down this tube, we irradiate it with microwaves. And it turns out that our radiation we apply is that exactly the cesium resonance frequency. It, it causes the cesium to change its atomic state. 
And so the way we tell that with cesium is that the lower state of the cesium transition has a certain magnetic moment. And the upper state is also behaved like a magnet, but it's different. And we can tell when the, you know, the magnetism of the state changes at, at the end of the tube. The other end of the tube then is where you've got that little detector. That's right. And that's able to detect if it's coming in at one state versus the other. Yeah, that's right. I see. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that is the basic idea. Yeah. So anyway, season one was a great success story because, you know, there were ideas for other kinds of clocks, but it was a system that was fairly easy to reproduce. And the thing was important about that. You want labs anywhere in the world to be able to make this device. And in fact, it was so good that the standard of the second was defined in, I think it's 1967, as being the cesium transition. And it's been the best clock for maybe until about the last 10 years. And now there's better ones that we can measure more precisely. But you know, because of the inertia, there's, you know, not clear what is the clock to choose now. So, so it remains the definition. And we have kind of other de facto standards where the frequency is known better that we can do experiments with, but the definition of the second is still based on cesium. Hmm. Well, and I would, I would assume the fact that you said that cesium can melt in your hand, I'm assuming that the fact that it can transition at such a low temperature probably played into why it was... That's one of the issues. Yeah, it was just... It was easy to make this oven, you know, that cesium metal would be inside and we didn't have to heat it very high to make this vapor that then we could collimate and make a beam. So that was certainly, was, you know, that was one of the practical advantages of cesium is just it was very easy to make this beam. Well, but if, you know, let's say gold, which you have to heat up quite a bit more to turn it into a gas, uh-huh. let's say technologically that wasn't the issue. Would there be other problems with some other metal being just the fact that it's being so hot? Would that cause any other issues? Well, the one issue that we actually it, it turns out a limitation of cesium is that we, we heat it up and it's traversing this tube and you know one of the things we have to worry about is an interesting effect in physics and that is the fact that they're moving time runs slower due to einstein he, you know he, he told us that time runs slower for the atoms because they're moving hmm. and it's this so-called time dilation effect that limits the accuracy of the cesium clocks so yeah, we're so able to was, measure it perfectly fine it's just that the fact that it is moving and there's some fluctuations in that potentially, right? Some of the cesium atoms are a little bit faster than others and, and whatnot. Yeah, that's right. And that's it. And it's just hard to determine precisely the, the, the velocity, you know, to extract that shift out of the frequency we see. So so this actually, you know, having said that, uh, you, you mentioned earlier before we started, I think this idea of laser cooling, that was one of the, the big things about laser cooling was that, you know, by cooling the atoms down, we could suppress this time dilation effect. And so that was has been one of the main applications of laser cooling in the newer clocks. All right, so let's jump out for just a second. So David just mentioned Einstein and relativity right here. And so As we said, there were some technical issues, so Chad and I are going to kind of try to explain what he was trying to tell us about. So Einstein came up with this idea that you have different perceptions of time depending on whether you're moving or not. This is what we call special relativity. And I think we've had an episode about that specifically. I believe so. Sounds familiar. It sounds very counterintuitive. We always think that time marches on and it's independent of what we do or anything like that. But it turns out that... It depends if you're in a meeting or not, I think, is... yeah. 
Yeah, because time flies when you're having fun. That's right. But it does actually change depending on your reference frame. And so most of our activities as humans, we don't span too much of that, right? <laughs> We're mostly pretty much just traveling at one speed. But it is possible to, to actually measure some of these differences. And so Wineland was talking about how if we slow atoms down so that they're basically standing still, still relative to us, right? Uh -huh. So that, And then we see the same time. But if they're moving, then the time that they see is different, which means that the frequency that they're emitting will be different to us. And so th there's this shift you have to put into there. And so just just to make sure I understand this, what you're saying is that this is in a comparative sense. And so if the molecule were wearing a watch and it looked at its watch, as far as it's concerned, seconds are moving as they always have. And right. if you and I are wearing a watch, as far as we're concerned, seconds are moving as they always have. But if we're traveling at different speeds relative to each other, especially if those are, are really great speeds relative to each other mm -hmm. that are different, then if you compare our two watches, that's where the difference emerges. Yeah. Okay. And, that and sometimes seems so counterintuitive to me. It seems so weird, but I mean, I, it's been demonstrated. So it, it's, yeah. it's a thing. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's definitely one of those things where you learn it in your sophomore year and you're like, that's garbage. And then... <laughs> Then you revisit it your senior year and you're like, that's still garbage. And then <laughs> a couple of times in grad school and you're like, no, blah. And ev eventually you're just like, oh, it's been seen. It's been demonstrated experimentally, I guess. Yeah. Whatever. So. <laughs> um, and what's actually also interesting with this, we will talk about it later on in this episode, is that Einstein also made a prediction that gravity will also change time as well. Hmm. And so if you are experiencing a different gravitational pull on you, then time will also change. And normally we talk about this with, you know, like black holes. If you fall mm. into a black hole, your time, you'll be moving a lot slower than what we would see you doing mm. and so forth. And, and what we will see later on is that they're going to be using clocks to measure small changes of gravity. And so mm. that's something to look forward to. Okay. But long story short, time is not a constant. It is absolutely counterintuitive, but it is something that has been demonstrated that the time will actually change. And so if the time is changing for these atoms, and remember, every single atom is doing exactly what it should be doing as far as it's concerned, right? It's not doing something weird. It's just that from our frame of reference, we see it behaving differently than if we were in a different situation. Okay. And so by slowing it down, by getting it really, really cold, then they actually are standing still. And so then we can have the accurate frequency and the accurate timekeeping for that. Okay. So back to the show. Uh, so you're saying that the limitation here with the cesium is that because it's moving, you have some uh, time dilation effects. Its experience of time is different from our experience in the lab and so forth. And so you're saying if we could have some gas that's trapped, that's not moving around and ideally not even just jiggling because it has a temperature. If it's just trapped and basically standing still, that would be even more accurate than just- Well, the, not quite. If, it, if it's a yeah. hot gas, even if it's moving, if it's jiggling back and forth, say it's inside of a glass sill, for example, and bouncing around, for the, this time dilation effect, it's a velocity. So even though it doesn't, it isn't going anywhere overall other than being in the container that holds it, this time dilation shift goes as the square of the speed. So it doesn't matter which direction it's moving. It's just that it's moving. So you mentioned a, a phrase a little bit ago of laser cooling. Uh -huh. And can you explain a little bit about what that is? Help me wrap my head around that and why that's related to what we're talking about here. Well, yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I mentioned the cesium atom. You know, we're trying to tune the radiation where the, the atom absorbs maximally. And so the idea of laser cooling, it involves the atoms want to absorb at a particular frequency. So the idea there is that it, it 
One other effect is needed to understand laser cooling, and that is the so-called first-order Doppler effect. You know, when I was a kid, the example given by, you know, if you heard a train going by, the whistle, the train would be higher when it's approaching you when it, rather than when it recedes, you know. this. And uh, we take advantage of that because an atom that's moving, say, relative to a laser beam, it, let's say the atom is moving against the laser beam, then because of this first-order Doppler effect, the atom will perceive the laser frequency as being higher than if the atom was moving in the same direction as the laser beam. And so that's one of the basic ingredients. And then the other thing is just to say that if we have the laser tuned slightly lower than the frequency that the atom wants to absorb at, then when it moves against the laser beam, it will shift the laser beam into resonance with the transition. And when the atom absorbs the photons, there's a momentum kick. And mm. since the atoms are moving against the laser beam, that momentum kick is against their direction. And so it slows down gradually okay. after many scattering events. And so that's the idea. I think it's probably worth reminding ourselves, at least for the non-physicists on the call, that when we're talking about cooling and heating and temperature from like a physicist's point of view, we're, we're talking about motion of atoms. That's right. And so yeah. what you're describing here is the slowing down of an atom is in sort of a kinetic sense. That's the cooling aspect. Of yeah, it. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So temperature, you know, I usually think of a cell that's, you know, the atoms are thermal. And it works there as well. So we kind of use that term. We say cooling. And what we really mean in that case is slowing. But it also, you know, we can rig it up so it actually reduces the temperature of the gas as well. Can you bring okay. the atoms all the way to a stop? Uh, that's right. But they tend to, a little bit the problem with that is if you don't, if you don't have any way of, you know, controlling their motion in the transverse direction, you know, even though they absorb the photons, you know, that slows their motion, when they re-emit, it goes in every direction. Mm. So that causes the beam to blow up, you know, so we have to account for that effect too. Mm. And you you mentioned trapping earlier. That's why we trap the atoms because we can, you know, or, or, you know one of the nice things about trapping is we, you know, they get, you know, they, their, their motion gets scrambled into different directions and then we can, we just need to cool in one direction usually when they, you know, when they collide and thermalize. So. How, and so how do you go about trapping them then? Because so you, you mentioned that when they re-emit, I guess, am I to understand that that emission in one direction, sort of the momentum in the opposite direction is what kind of pushes them and scatters okay. them. Right. And so you, you must have some way of counteracting that, that cause of the scatter or, or well, the result of that I scatter. Mean, you know, we can't, get rid of it. Well, what we could do with this cooling principle, you know, we can, we can just slow the, the atoms down enough that, that, it, that we, you know, we, we can, it doesn't cause so much of a problem right? as opposed to say if it's at room temperature. I see. Yeah. And so anyway, that, but, and so you asked about trapping, well, it, you know, uh, some of the early uh, experiments on cesium, for example, they were done. The cesium was put in a, glass cell that was coated with some material that would, you know, the atoms would bounce easier, not be perturbed by the collisions. And uh, this, for example, all the so-called alkali atoms that have similar electronic structures as cesium, clocks were made on these different, like rubidium is another example. They were made uh, on the same principle as the cesium clock, but just with different frequencies. And anyway, so that, that was the, those kind of clocks where atoms were in cells, then they, they were they were also you know used as as clocks, just as cesium were. 
And the advantage, it just turns out cesium is easier to evaluate the, the perturbations. And so that's why it became the standard. Hmm. If so I what, could, if I could yeah, step yeah. back and I, I, I want to just spend a little bit of time unpacking the Doppler piece uh -huh. of this. Um, so like when I'm teaching students in intro classes about the Doppler effect, I, I like to remind them, make them think about like standing in the ocean and having waves coming at them. Uh -huh. Right. And if those waves are coming at a certain speed and a regular frequency, right, then you can count that up and you can say, okay, so I got hit by this wave and count one Mississippi, two Mississippi until the next one. But if you're walking into the ocean, then you're kind of cutting them off and it's, it's hitting you up a little bit faster than that. That's right. That's, and, that's, and if you're running the, out, then it's the opposite. Yeah. That, that's the, that's very analogous to the Doppler effect. Yes, that's right. And so that's you're saying here, like if we have an atom in your, in your uh, beam, if it's heading basically you, you set the frequency of the waves in such a way that they're below where the atom would want to react to it. And so if the atom happens to be going into the ocean in that direction, then it would see it a little bit bumped up and be at the right frequency. And so you, you're right. tuning your light in just the right way to make sure that it, it's bumping the atoms back. That's, a little bit. that's right. So the, yeah, that, I mean, that, that's basically right. The atoms want to absorb at a particular frequency and so if they're moving against, say, a laser beam, then, you know, if we tune the laser beam that, so that it, can't, can't, you know, takes out the shift of the frequency due to the Doppler effect, then we can get the atoms to absorb and re-emit maximally, and that slows the atom. The momentum kicks it slows the atoms down. Hmm. And now clocks now, I was poking around. Apparently, they're so precise now that you can actually tell the difference between if you're maybe on the first floor of a building versus the top of a high-story building or something like that. Yeah, that's right. In fact, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this is one of probably the second thing that, that Einstein is most noted for in terms of relativity. And that is, you know, he, he was the one who described this time dilation effect. But also, it turns out in his theory of general includes gravity, it turns out if you run, have a clock and different gravitational potential, it runs at different rates. So that's the effect I think you're talking about. And actually, you know, when I was at NIST, we did an experiment where we had two clocks that are close by to each other. We raised one by about 30 centimeters. And we could see that the one we raised ran faster than the one that was sitting in the same position. 30 centimeters, really? Yeah, but no, that, and now that there's actually, you know, our colleagues at Chile have done uh, a similar thing, but they, their experiments are on neutral atoms that are held with laser beams, but they can measure this effect over millimeters of height difference. Wow. It's, yeah, it's really amazing, you know. And I mean, the other thing, other thing is just interesting, I think, you know, particularly for students is that, you know, you, you think, well, maybe, you know, this gravitational effect is, you know, somehow causing the, you know, the atoms to run slower or faster or whatever, depending on the field, the potential it's in. But what Einstein told us, no, it's, you know, as far as they're concerned, the clocks are perfect. And what's what's changing is that in these different reference frames, say for the gravitational potential, is time is running at a different rate. So as far as the atoms are concerned, you know, they, they're happy. It's just that their time frame is running slower than or say, if, you know, if they're if they're higher than we are, their their time frame is running, time is running faster for them than it is for us, you know, on the ground. And so, I mean, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, that really, you know, it's, that's the really profound thing that Einstein told us about. It's not, you know, the, the gravitational potential redshift is not shifting the operational clock. It's, it's just changing time. 
Hmm. That, you hmm. know, the physics is exactly the same. The guy on the, you know, the, at the higher position, he, he says he can't see it. You know, his clock is running is just all the effects are just the same as the guy on the ground. And the difference is they have different time frames. And that's why we see this shift. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, and that's why I say it. That's why it's really, it's not just an environmental effect. You know, it's a fundamental. You know, and so, if, and so that, that's the only uh, thing you would notice, though, if you were ab able to make the comparison, right? Because from the perspective of each individual, as you say, time is marching on exactly the same from their frame of reference. That's and so right. it's only when you compare those frames of reference right. that you uncover the difference. That's right. Exactly. So and say typically, you know, just send a, some sort of electromagnetic signal, laser or, you know, microwaves or whatever to... to to, to measure this frequency difference, but, hmm. but yeah, so. So could you tell the difference between the tide then? Is this, I don't uh, know. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah? There's, I mean, as the, you know, there's certainly, I mean, the, the you know, the clocks on board the satellites have to be worried about that, you know, this effect due to the change in tides and so on. Hmm. And, uh, but they, you know, they, you know, the clocks are intercompared so precisely that, uh, you know, they can, they can get, a, you know, they can just subtract this effect out. And there's, you know, there's a lot of redundancy in the system, you know, it's a network of satellites that can intercompare and things like that. But it's, hmm. it's, a, it's definitely an effect that they have, it affects, that they have to account for this time dilation shift. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And so then, so when we're talking about these atomic clocks, then it is, it's that the, whatever the oscillator within the satellite or whatever, is calibrated to the standard. Uh -huh. It's not that each satellite has their own um, cesium oven built in or, or no. doing any of that no, work. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, these days I don't think cesium is are used in the satellites, but, but there are different kinds of atomic clocks that are used and they, and you know, they, they, that by intercomparing themselves, they have to, you know, the, the different satellites that can calibrate out this time dilation shift, but it's, it's something that, you know, they definitely have to, to account for it. So, well, I just remember I was at one point, my family bought me, it said it was an atomic clock and they were so excited, you know, <laughs> to give me an atomic clock. I was like, okay. I mean, but it's this little bitty thing. And when I eventually, by looking at it and figuring it out, I, I realized that actually it was just, um, syncing up with an actual right. atomic clock. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, that's, that's not, that's not exactly the same. Yeah, thing. No, I, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember this as well as there, these things being sold as atomic clocks, but, but I think, you know, they got away with it because it was synchronized to a atomic clocks in somewhere, you know, maybe a yeah. lab in Boulder or something like that. But, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, but yeah, so, so this, you know, the, the, you know, the, I mean, they still sell clocks, which are, synchronized by radio waves to the you know the atomic clocks and labs like like the national like NIST for example mm -hmm. and there's a lot of inner comparing so they can nail it down pretty well no matter where you are so yeah yeah excellent well so I, I think that we've learned a little bit about how we can control and manipulate atoms and how to build a better clock basically do you mind if we delve a little bit into some fun questions about for instance like when you were awarded the Nobel Prize how were you informed <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, you know, some people like to stay up and see, you know, who the winners are. 
<laughs> I didn't do that. But anyway, so one interesting thing is that the prizes are announced a little before noon in Stockholm, which is yeah. about three in the morning in, in Boulder. So basically, <laughs> I was sleeping and I wouldn't have woken up, but my my wife woke up and she got the call and came and got me. So anyway, <laughs> that started. It, it is a pretty surreal experience in you know, I mean, it's, it's such a big deal in a lot of sciences. But anyways, it was in this first call, uh, you know, the president of the, of the Swedish Academy, I can't remember now, but he, he was very polite and congratulatory and things like that. But they knew there were going to be a lot of reporters who wanted to do interviews and stuff. So so we only spent a few minutes on the phone. And mm. he said, you know, that they would be sending more and someone else would contact them with more information. So so this initial contact only, you know, only lasted about five minutes minutes and they what was interesting about this call even it, they do this right before the the announcement you know so but then I, and then not long after that after the announcement was made after we got off the phone calls started pouring into the, to my phone where you know people were trying to get interviews and things like that so actually one funny thing about that was I, I i took a few calls you know at that time but it was clear from that point on when when i got a call you know every second or two in the call there'd be a click which was someone trying to yeah. <laughs> you know get you know have, ring in and so after about a half hour of this I, I i told my wife i said i'm going to the lab because i didn't want to bother her you know so <laughs> so because i knew they, they i knew this would have a you know they had a press you know, release kind of and so mm -hmm. so we went down there and there you know they there were a lot of reporters there so you know you could satisfy them you know be in the same room with it and so that's the way that worked but actually one one interesting story i like to tell is that you know i went down there very early in the morning and you know the activity was busy all through the day and anyway towards the end of the day around five o'clock i said ah, i'm going to go now and but anyway what was kind of funny is that on my office phone i mean there were hundreds of calls you know that i wasn't answering they got my answering machine but anyway i was about ready to leave that you know walked out the door and i heard one more call i said well i'll just answer this one and the, the guys he said this is stable and i said yes and he says this is air force one so, <laughs> so it was president obama calling wow so wow. that was, you know, was just amazing coincidence because he's the only call after those first few the award was announced i, I hadn't answered any calls and it was this one call <laughs> So that was, that was, that was, was cool. I get a call from him. That's excellent. Did you have an inkling ahead of time? Like, do they tell people like, you know, you're on the first ballot or something like that? No, no, they, they don't do that. And I think for a good reason. I didn't get any any information that made me feel like it. You know, I, I mean, I think people that have gotten it, they know there's a chance, you know, but I literally haven't got any indicators that it might happen. So I must say that, you know, the Nobel Committee, they are really serious about keeping this quiet. And they do. I think, I don't know of any cases where people have got, there may have been other people that speculated they might win the award, but they weren't getting that from the Nobel Committee, you know, so they're, mm. you know, they're really good at keeping the secrets. Mm. Yeah, I was just thinking about when you were first describing your situation of receiving the call in the middle of the night. I was wondering, like, did you have to go into work that morning and say, hey, guys, guess what phone call I got last night? <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say, I went, you know, I, I, I didn't want my wife to have to be bothered with these calls. Yeah. I went into work about a little after five in the morning. And even then people were coming in to say hi, that sort of thing. So Cool. Yeah. Did you go to the ceremony and all that? Yeah. And, oh, and yeah. Do you, yeah. And do you do you go back for subsequent ceremonies as a, no, as a laureate or I, how does that I work? No, some people are invited back, and I haven't gone back 
for the actual ceremony. But they do the, they, every year they have, at least until, you know, COVID came along, they would have a, you know, a, a big meeting of Nobel laureates. What was nice about that is that maybe 50 or 100 laureates at these meetings, and they would invite in a lot of students, you know. So it was a big deal for, you know, all over the world, you know, for mm. students to be invited to this thing, you know, to kind of rub elbows with the laureates. So that that's one nice thing that they do. It's very student-oriented, but it's really, really a nice thing they do for a few days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for spending some time with us today to talk. It was a lot of fun chatting. Well, me too. Thanks. Agreed. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodeo Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have an idea for a future episode, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.